Welcome to Cheek by Jowl's podcast, not true, but useful. This is episode one, thoughts from inside quarantine. Hello, I'm your host, Lucy Dawkins, and over the course of the next few weeks, I'm going to be interviewing Declan Donnellan and Nick Ormerod, the designer and director duo behind the internationally renowned theatre company Cheek by Jowl. This podcast is going to take you behind the curtain to find out more about their unique creative process and how, after nearly four decades of extraordinary productions, their practice continues to evolve. In this first episode, we're going to be talking about the challenges of thinking about theatre during the corona quarantine and how Cheek by Jell's philosophy has developed since the publication of the seminal book, The Actor and the Target. And it's a great pleasure to be here with the author of that book, Declan Donnellan. Hello, Declan. Hello. Hello, Lucy. So we're coming to you with a remote recording from deep inside the COVID-19 lockdown. So we're calling this podcast Not True But Useful. So uh, I've heard you say that a lot. And can you tell me what that means to you, Not True But Useful? Well, I, I don't think anything I say is true. It's um, when I, I say things to help, it's to try to help to advance us to make sure that the, the piece of theatre we're doing has a bit more life in. Like, as I say in the Act of the Target, the, you know, the, the metro map of a city is not true, but it's useful. It's not, you know, it doesn't bear any resemblance to what the city looks like, but it's a grid that helps you go from one place to another. But these things are just temporary models that are going to help us. We shouldn't... Um, we shouldn't throw ourselves on things. I've heard people talk about a Donnellan system of approaching plays after the actor in the target. Do you think there's a Donnellan system? And if so, what is the Donnellan system? Well, I, I certainly hope there isn't. I mean, I, I went out of my way, the actor in the target, to sort of say it's, you know, if acting's good, don't try to fix it. And it's only if you get blocked, you should use this. So it's certainly not a um, a, a, a book on how to direct or how to act. It's certainly not to teach you how to act. It's something that you might use if you get into difficulty, if you get into a particular sort of difficulty, which is a sort of panic block when you can't think to put one foot in front of another and you feel frozen. And that's what the actor and the target's about. But that's the main thrust of the book. It's certainly not about uh, a testament of how to direct or how I direct. So do you think it's a bit dangerous to have a system when we're approaching... A rehearsal room. Yes, I think so. I think, well, personally, I think so. I don't know. You know, there's a million ways of directing a play. There's a million ways of making good theatre. There are a million kinds of good theatre. Um, I don't know all of them. I can only know my way. And my, the, my, the way I have is, in a way, not to have a way that Nick and I are in a room looking at actors. Um, we're trying to make it better. And what constitutes that better does change from time to time. And um, we have one priority which destroys all other priorities which is that what we do must be alive as everything else comes uh, secondary to that and it's normally pretty obvious when something's alive what's not obvious is um how to make it alive and then the secret is you can't make it alive but what you can do is try to stop killing it so you can take away the blockage so that's a, a, a basic principle for us and um we're in a really bizarre circumstance right now it's very unusual conditions in which I think all of us are reassessing what it means to do the jobs that we're doing. And I'm fascinated to know a bit more about what's been preoccupying you as a director. Well, it is an extraordinary time. But there's something also slightly miraculous about now that we look at our leaders floundering around on, on, on television and bit by bit nature impinges itself on our consciousnesses and, and the very authority that seems to be lacking in so many leaders 
um, seems to be coming in a strange way from nature. I never thought I'd hear myself uh, talk like that. I'm, I'm not a very rainbows and unicorn person. But, you know, the bird song where I'm living is getting more deafening every day. And I'm very, very conscious of nature and I'm very conscious of silence. And it'll have a good effect on me. Um, I hope. I mean, I, I, I know people who've suffered in their health and I know people who are going to suffer economically and I, I think of them as well. So uh, I know you've been spending part of your extra free time tackling your new book, which I'm very excited to see when it comes out. Yeah, you won't be as excited to see it as I will be because I'm, I'm, I'm dying to expel this monstrous birth that's been going on inside me. It's um, The reason I'm having trouble writing it is not because so much of the matter inside, but it's how to organise it in sequence because it's like a, a monstrous matrix. Everything connects with everything else. And I, I'm always trying to flatten it out into a pedagogical line or into a, at least a logical line so the reader might have some coherent path through it. But it's, that's actually quite difficult to do. Um, and chatting about it is um, probably something I can do as a step to it. So it's nice to be able to talk to you about it. Yes, the, the, the thing that the, the virus, this strange lockdown, um, it's, it's quite interesting because we, we think of um, how much we miss being with other people. And, um, and particularly, you know, the theatre experience that we can watch endless, endless TV. Um, but the actual experience of being in a room with somebody, hearing them breathe, um, smelling them, feeling their heartbeat, God knows... Um, looking at them spitting on stage, we miss actually being in a in a kind of carnal space with other people. It's, it's very much part of us, part of our, our very deep genetic demand for us. We were not born um, in a capitalist system of self-reliance. We were born in a, a system of group re reliance. And we want to get back into, into spaces with people. On the other hand, a little bit dryly to add, is that in fact we've been practicing social distancing for hundreds and thousands of years because one of the things that we do is um, we titrate the difference all the time, the distance all the time between us and other people, not too close and, and not too far. And we do that in terms of intimacy, in terms of friendship, in, in all sorts of terms. I think that whole business of making sure we keep apart is really um, kind of very basic. And now it's been brought sharply into relief because it might kill us if we don't maintain proper distance or it might kill somebody else. So that makes me think about this very important word that I use in rehearsal, which is encounter. I think that when we go to the theatre, we go to witness an encounter. There are various encounters. One is our encounter with the actors who are on stage. And secondly, their encounter with the things that they see the scenes that they play, their partners, or the predicament. But we actually go to see the encounter, and we really, in some way, want that encounter to be raw. Because in real life, really, we are always mediating, I think, the difference between us and other people. And this, you know, many people go to see Amlis and so on because they have problems with intimacy or with being close to people. And we've many ways around that. And, you know, we can have... 450 friends on Facebook, but it doesn't really prove anything about our, our contact with people. We need to think a little bit about what happens in an encounter. In an encounter, we, well, our first encounter is often with our mothers um, in the pram, and 
the mother says to the baby, I see you and you see me, um, by waving, by smiling, by copying facial expressions. And the very important thing in an encounter is to understand that um, when I see something, it sees me back. And that if I see something, I change it by seeing it, but it also changes me. For example, as kids or as adults, we often see sort of westerns or cop series with shootouts at the end and military ones. And you will see people running around a city with a gun and someone else chasing them with a gun. And they normally get to the corner of a building and shoot around the corner. And the other person shoots around the corner. So they duck and dive, they shoot and dive back. But if you think about it, it's an interesting rhythm, myth, of uh, they want to see the person they're shooting at, but not long enough for the person to be able to take aim back at them. It's a kind of dance in real life. It's trying to have the encounter without being seen. We keep things under wraps. And when we go to the theatre, we go to see those wraps taken off. So we, in a way, go to see people having encounters with things that they can't encounter in real life. Nietzsche said, don't look into the abyss for too long or the abyss will look into you. And everybody goes, ooh, that's so scary. And, and it's, you know, a lot of horror films have been started with that quote. Gives it a bit of class. But actually, it's not really that straight. It's disturbing. Of course, if you look into anything long enough, it's going to look back into you. It's a, it's a two-way process. And that's very, very important in the theatre that we must absolutely commit to the fact that theatre is something that takes place between the um, what's happening on stage and in the audience. It's not a work of art, it's an act of art. And it exists not as a state, but as a process between the two things. For me, that's a very important aspect of encounter. And so perhaps is that, that is what is the most political thing about the theatre, is it that it forces the audience to witness things about themselves that they wouldn't be witnessing elsewhere because you are revealing yourself by watching, by opening that two-way channel with the stage, that to see Richard III and to sympathise with him is to open up something in yourself, something a bit messy and ugly and uncomfortable but very human and acknowledge it, to assess the patch of ground that you're standing on and see if it's really so secure after all. Yeah, I mean, you know, I mean, I also know what it's like to stare at the television screaming at the, what people are saying on the screen. I did a lot of that. I seem to remember my partner in 2016, but it's not particularly political doing that. It's, um, you know, one's sort of just opposing one's own position. But to allow something to change us, uh, to allow something to um, encourage us to consider if the position that we're taking is the best position, um, or if there is, or, or if, it's, if there's another position that we could take, that's incredibly important. But I think you know this business of the encounter that's open at two ends is very important when we go to the theatre, and we shouldn't take it for granted in our lives because we spend quite a lot of time making sure that we don't encounter. I mean, I think what's interesting about the time that we're finding right now, where there is no encounter in a space with it anybody other than who you are isolating with yes if you're lucky enough to be isolating with someone else that it, it's forcing i think all of us who make theater to reassess why theater is so important and it seems to me that that the encounter this piece of radical empathy is uh what makes theater vital Yes, I, I would like to say now, though, that I, I don't have a reason why I do theatre. I, I do theatre because I love it. 
Um, I always want to mention um, Montaigne at that moment. The greatest love poetry is often supposed to be in Romeo and Juliet that Shakespeare wrote at the end of the 16th century. But I think that's not the greatest love poetry that I know. The greatest love poetry I know is, is or the greatest expression of love I can think of, know of, was said about uh, a couple of decades earlier by Montaigne in France when um, he's... Um, he had a great friend who died, whom he loved very much, who died when they were, they were both young. And he says, it's a very subtle sentence, really. He says, if you force me to explain why I loved him, all I can say is it was because it was him, because it was me. And that, I think, for me, is the only definition of love. In other words, there's no reason for it. It's just because it was him because it was me. The subtle thing to notice is the, is the opening of that, if you force me to explain why. And I feel like that about the theatre, actually. I, I don't know why I do it. I mean, a motive really is um, my way of explaining what I've done. Um, I don't really think... I think motives are very dangerous for actors to think about, and we sometimes maybe need them to get as like a very first or second rung of a ladder, but then we need to really get out of them because motives are very often my reason of explaining things. I mean, now... I can find lots of reasons why I do the theatre, but they're all fake. Uh, the real reason is that I have no option. It's, it's the thing that I most love doing. Well, it's also interesting that you say that's a dangerous thing for an actor to be asking or a, a difficult thing for an actor to ask because after Stanislavski was so used to asking that question in rehearsals, asking a, an actor, what does the character want? But is this, in fact, not a useful question? I think what does the character want is a very useful question to begin with. Well, first of all, let me explain. Maybe I could talk it through. Um, we start the rehearsal, and it'll be, in some respects, quite traditional. I'll try and build up a skeleton of what we're doing on the set that Nick's done. And, yes, I'll use some traditional things like, you know, not so much what you want, but what, what, what do you want? What do you know? What, you know, what's, what's the outcome you'd like? What's the outcome you don't want? I talk a bit quite traditionally about character and so on. But then after a while, we get it up and I kind of have to go into another gear thing because very often that skeleton doesn't necessarily bring life. And so you get something that's working quite well. Um, but there's another place that you have to take it and that involves a kind of different vocabulary and is that vocabulary about uh understanding that we don't always know what we want well indeed it is yes but i think i'd probably start you know the the the, the scene when she comes to him in the middle of dinner why did you leave the chamber um i probably talk to them about you know wanting to kill duncan and be king and queen i'm sure i would except it's kind of I think I'd want the actors to start there. I wouldn't want to confuse them about that. And Nick would set up very clearly where Duncan is in the room next door. And I'd set up the room and um, we'd, we'd, we'd talk about spatial, spatially very simply um, and about what they want. But after a while, we're going to discover that, <laughs> that the profound mystery at the heart of Macbeth is that we don't know what they want. We have no idea why they do it. It seems to be clear, but it isn't clear. We assume they want to be king and queen, but we have no. there's no actual sensual, plausible feeling for that. It's like as soon as the idea occurs to them, um, they're both terrified that they won't do it. He's never happy from the beginning. 
He doesn't think, oh, great, I shall be king. He never thinks that. <laughs> Your children shall be king. It makes him miserable from the beginning because it sort of sets up a, a violent inner conflict in him. And, and, he, and that's how we begin. And they kind of launch in on this plan to do this thing that I, it seems very clear to me that they don't really want to do it. And um, the mystery is, well, why would anyone do something they don't want to do? And the answer is, you know, let's look in the mirror um, because we do it all the time. And why we do things that we don't want to do. Um, it's, it's good to think about it. And is that part of what is so extraordinary about the idea of an encounter in the theatre from the audience's point of view, is that you have to, with the great plays, encounter the problem that actually you don't know a lot of the time, and that's a very uncomfortable truth to acknowledge about yourself. We don't know why Macbeth does what he does, really, by the end of the play, and so you have to acknowledge that you don't always know what drives you to the most extreme behaviours in your own life? Well, if we're foolish, I think we'll think, oh, that's these are just two sort of, you know, Harry Scott's lords in the sort of 10th century. It's got nothing to do with me, and I'm not going to kill the, kill the, kill the king of Scotland, and I don't talk in poetry, and I don't use hyperbole. But actually, um, we do. Actually, when normally when we're doing going to do something we don't want to do, we have wonderful arguments to explain why it's, in fact, a very good thing to do. And... It's, it, it, the more we actually look into it, the closer we get to it, quite disturbingly so. There's a, a joke in um, a line in, in Twelfth Night, and it's picked up in uh, The Changeling as well. They refer to the picture of We Three. The fools say, um, you know, did you never see the picture of We Three? We Three was a picture of two fools. And um, people were supposed to say, who is the third one, We Three? And the answer was, you who are looking at it. Um, and you think, ha, 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 what a funny joke. Well, that's odd to have a whole oil painting devoted to a kind of one-off cartoon joke. Who is the third fool? Um, and you think how droll that they, you know, would... It's a one-off laugh. Of course, it isn't a one-off laugh. That is what all the great works of art do. They're continually showing us the two fools and asking us where the third one is. And all of these things hugely implicate us. And we go and we're unguarded because we're in an encounter. So in this part of the episode, we're going to think about how we can apply some of these ideas to an actual play. So we've talked a bit about Macbeth, so let's take Macbeth, and I know you've directed it and worked on it lots with, in different ways with Nick over the years, and you've suggested that we should focus on Act 1, Scene 7. So for those of you who haven't seen or read Macbeth, uh, this is the scene when Macbeth has escaped from a dinner party that he's hosting, at which the guest of honour is Duncan, the king, who he's planning to murder later that night, and the struggle of keeping his poker face on means that he's left the dinner suddenly. And he firstly explains to the audience why it's a reasonable idea to kill Duncan. And then by saying it out loud, persuades himself that it's not such a good idea after all. And then Lady Macbeth comes to find him and changes his mind back again. You can find the text of this scene in the podcast notes. And there's also a link to the archive images of Declan and Nick's 2009 production of it. So uh, how could we apply the idea of, say, it being a problem to always know what the character wants? 
to this particular scene? Well, let's be pra- let me try and be practical. Nick and I would rehearse it. We'd have a strong sense of space. We'd have a strong sense of where um, Duncan was, was where the other room is. But we're, the other room is always about what's going on in the main room. And we'd start and, and we'd, we'd talk about, you know, what they want, what their motives are, what they want, what they don't want. But it's not going to get us that far because... Um, there's a problem with the words. Now, sometimes people say, oh, Macbeth is the greatest thriller ever written. Um, yeah, that's kind of true, but it's very dangerous if you think it's a great thriller with a lot of poetic language sprayed on it. It's not about the sprayed-on language. Uh, the sprayed-on language is, I mean, is, is, it's not sprayed-on. It's about the language because the dramatic action is that they're using weird words um, to hide from themselves what they want to do. So, for example, um, he, he says to the audience, um, it's really easy, I want to murder the king, then I'm not so sure about murdering the king, maybe it's not a good idea to murder the king, then she's, he, she comes on and he says, I've decided not to murder the king, and she says, well, you must murder the king, and he says, well, I don't want to murder the king, she says, this is why you must murder the king, and they both agree, right, we'll go off and murder the king. But what we notice in the scene is that two words are missing, and one is murder, and the other missing word is king. But the whole scene is about murdering or not murdering the king. And if we look, we see they have this extraordinary set of substitute words for it. And the first one is it. If it were done, when it were done, then it were well, it were done quickly. And it there, what does it mean? It sounds like he's giving instructions as to how to make an omelette. But in fact, he's talking about murdering a king. Not only a king, a very old man, an old man who... Um, has just been incredibly generous to them and who is sleeping in their house. And they're going to have to sneak into his bedroom while he's snoring and knife him. Um, It couldn't be shabbier, really. Um, So he refers to it as it, then it becomes the assassination, then it becomes um, this business, and then it waxes through all sorts of different metamorphoses, climaxing in the sort of... As a tissue of bullshit that's developed through the whole scene about all the different ways we can have of not saying murder the king. And it climaxes on um, when she says, um, she refers to it as our great quell, which is nonsense. I mean, who knows what our great quell? She doesn't know what she's saying. It's just anything other than saying murder the king. But what do we learn from this? Is it just a trick? I don't think so. I think it's about... It doesn't tell us anything. We won't discover the meaning of it. There isn't a secret code. It's not something you don't have to be brilliant to be able to dig into the depths of this um, secret that Shakespeare has hidden from us. It's as you have an unpleasant sense that they're not really facing up to what they're going to do. And if we think about it, they don't really want to do it. And then the question is, well, why do they do what they don't want to do? But why do we do what we don't want to do is a basic, basic question that we all need to ask ourselves. But we all, you know, in very ordinary ways, we look at friends and we're thinking, God, they complain of being lonely, but we see that they're just making, they're organising the terms of their own loneliness every day, that um, we see people doing all sorts of self-destructive things. And it's it's really a mystery as to why people really do do that. You can, you can try and help people, but it's it's very, very upsetting to love somebody who's bent on destroying themselves because it's, it puts you in a very difficult position. And that's one of the things that Shakespeare does in each of the tragedies, that the, the heroes or heroines um, address us, we bond with them, and then 
too late we realize that Shakespeare has handcuffed us to a maniac who's going to drag us through five acts through hell, basically. The hell is always going to be built on logic. That's something that we should notice. The hell is always built on logic with no redeeming sense of responsibility uh, to, 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 to save it. So the logic in the case of Macbeth and Lady Macbeth, I suppose, is not the reason why they want to do it. They're using logic to run away from the fact they have no idea that why they want to do it. The, the most important thing is that, is that the, the, the play takes place on a level of self-deception. It's using, which Shakespeare says it brilliantly, full of sound and fury signifying nothing. They build up on this noise, and it's kind of like as a result of that noise, they end up murdering this old man that they don't want to do it. The problem is that they love Duncan, and they envy this person. The worst thing where you could look at Macbeth is to think it's, it's, it's two psychopaths who have no feelings who commit a murder. That's often the way of a TV cop series. You discover that the person who did it is completely cut off from their feelings, and that explains the gruesome discovery at the beginning. But the Macbeths, I mean, I think they both love Duncan. They both seem to love each other. They've got a full gamut of feelings. They just don't want to have those feelings. They have this fantasy of what it is to be a, a doer, and this dread, um, as they all have, of being a loser. Um, and the loser is somebody who has who lets their feelings get in the way of things. And so they, they try and um, say to themselves, it's all right, I can, I, can, I can be practical, I can be simple if it were done, if it were done, it's well done quickly, no problem. And she comes on in her speech earlier on and tells us how she's going to sort out her, um, her feelings of, of, of pity, compassion, mercy. Um, and of course she can't. It's all nonsense. She can't cut them off. They come back. They, they come back again. I mean, she's done some terrible, terrible thing to herself by cutting off her feelings of mercy. But Beth practically says it outright when he says all he wants is the be-all and end-all of the complicated feeling of wanting desperately to kill Duncan and being horrified of it at the same time. It, he doesn't say he wants to kill him he says he wants to stop feeling complicated about killing him yes he was like othello he wants villain be sure that i'll prove my love of war it's not they just it's the doubt they can't bear and he actually can't stand that but what happens is that they're all trying to cut off the um the well, i'd call it the right side of the brain we have a left side of the brain that gives us language principles analysis um and is broadly speaking sometimes referred to as sort of more rational. And then we've got a right side of the brain which is more intuitive and it gives us um, feelings of um, common sense. Um, it's the only part of the brain that can have an, a new idea and it's the part of the brain that might give us feelings of forgiveness, redemption, uh, love. Um, the, the left side, we need both sides of the brain. It's absolutely point to saying, hey, I'm just a crazy madcap artist and I'm just a right brain person. I was always terrible at maths. You can't say that. You need both sides of the brain to be able to fully function as a human being. You wouldn't be able to make sense of any of these words if you didn't have a, an analytic left side of your brain. We need to use them both in concert. So it's like we have principle, but we also have responsibility. But life becomes much more efficient if you cut off the right side of the brain and just do logic and um, you'll see that it seems very often in Shakespeare tragedies that the people get kidnapped by the intuitive wild irrational 
intuitive side of the right side of their brain, Othello, Macbeth. It's not a bit of it, it's the exact opposite. They both get kidnapped by logic. It's logic that marches Othello into Desdemona's bedroom. And it's logic that takes them to this, you know, we want to be king and queen, therefore we've got to put him out of the way, and it's completely logical. But they they have to cut out this part of their hearts, this part of their souls, this part of their sense of um, forgiveness and mercy and human feelings and just the fact that blood, it's terrible to see that man's blood, um, as she says at the very end. And they have to cut that out of themselves. But the problem with the logical part of our brain, the problem with that logic, is that it tends to want to take over the whole brain, which it can do. Logic is like fire. Logic is a good servant and a bad master. So there's, there's Macbeth trying to give you this logical plan of making the omelette, killing the king, no problem, no problem. But unfortunately, a baby crashes through the ceiling, like in a Caravaggio painting. And he says, pity like a naked newborn bane striding the blast. It's like a message from Macbeth's unconscious, banging its way into this... Um, cookery program that Macbeth's giving, saying, but this is mad. What you're doing is completely bloody mad. You don't even want to do it. And the baby comes in. The baby always comes in in Macbeth to to save them. Um, but he doesn't listen to the baby. Um, but that's what happens. So he's like trying to be rational and trying to convince us that the universe is a, uh, is a rational place that follows logical clockwork principles. Um, I want, therefore I get. Um, but actually it's much more, it's, it's not, it's not, he doesn't even speak from, it's, it's from himself. It's not about the universe, it's about himself. That there are other sides of him and he's got to kill them. And one of the duels that happens through Macbeth is Macbeth and Lady Macbeth trying to silence this other part of themselves. And Lady Macbeth trying to silence it in Macbeth, that amazing bit in her first scene when she says, I'm going to have to persuade him to kill Duncan. Mm. His nature is too soft to see the most obvious way or allow himself to do the most obvious thing, which would be to kill Duncan. Mm. That she knows that she's going to have to coach him through this dreadful piece of logic and that that his brain is full of pity and compassion, just like hers, hers is. Yes, and just like hers is. I mean, in fact, it's all projection because the person who's too frightened to kill Duncan is Lady Macbeth. And she comes and she speaks to us as if um, she's auditioning for Verdi's Macbeth. She comes on as if she's some big horror film diva talking to um, the spirits that tend on mortal thoughts. But in fact, what's really going on is she's she's afraid that she's the loser. She's afraid she isn't this um, ubermensch with pure will, which is what she'd really like to be. Um, and she projects it into him. So very often, you know, when we make another person our project, which is always a big um, tragedy, the thing is we want to make the change in them that we, in fact, know we could do with in ourselves. So she's the one who wants to cut herself off. There's another image from a trial at the time. Um, it's a, there was a trial of a man called the Earl of Castlehaven, and it was a very, very wonderful sort of Jacobean um, kind of gay murder um, involving and, and it probably went reached up to the the top it was like it was exactly like a mini series um, and um, so the earl was cross-examined in the house of lords he was tried by his peers his literal peers and when he gave evidence, I think it was him or maybe it was one of the servants, there was a man standing beside him with a bag and the bag was to be put over his head if he said anything against 
if anything started to come out about the government. And I, I, I love that image. And I look at White House briefings now, and I look at, and it's just the, this man with the bag. And I, I can't remember whether it was used or not, but you can look it up. It's the trial of the Earl of Castlehaven. But it's this image of the man with the bag ready to um, pop it over the head of the witness. And I think that's an image that goes all the way through Macbeth for me, is that... Um, <laughs> It's like the baby, the, the, the pity like a naked newborn babe comes out of the bag. The dagger comes out of the bag. Um, the Banquo's ghost, all these bloody things keep coming out. He keeps on trying to control his conscience, keeps on trying to control that part of um, the, the loving part of himself. But the loving part of him is too strong. The loving part of him, and it fights back and it fights back and it fights back. And we're seeing somebody who's trying to logically defeat this overwhelming resurgence of their own capacity to love. Well, thank you very much, Declan. We're going to end there for today, and I can't wait for next week when we're going to be talking about what space has to do with Shakespeare. And in the meantime, I hope that you and Nick have a safe week of quarantine. Thank you very much. You too, Lucy. Thank you for listening to the first episode of Cheek by Jail's podcast, Not True, But Useful. Next week, we'll be discussing the way that Cheek by Jail think about space in their rehearsal process. If you have any questions you'd like to ask Declan or Nick, tweet at us at C by J and we will answer as many as we can in the next episode. In the meantime, it's Shakespeare's birthday this week and to celebrate, Cheek by Jowl is making the film of its Russian language production of Measure for Measure freely available to watch online from the Bard's birthday on Thursday the 23rd of April until Monday the 25th of May so that you can watch it from the front row of your sofa. Watch out for that on Cheek by Jowl's social media pages or visit the YouTube channel to watch the film. In the meantime, I've been your host, Lucy Dawkins, and the music you're hearing was composed by Pavela Kimkin.